Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rablick and um, thank you for joining me for this podcast. Over the past couple of years, we've had the issue of freedom of the press and in some respects, the criminalisation of aspects of journalism hit the, hit the media and uh, be a part of community debate. We've had a major, two major investigations that the Australian Federal Police have mounted, one of which deals with a story the ABC pursued called the Afghan Files that deals with the um, allegations of misconduct in the Afga Afghanistan war arena by Australian soldiers. The journalists involved, Dan Oakes and Samuel Clark from the ABC, are still subject to investigation by the AFP. But my guest today is actually someone who may have just a little bit of reason to breathe a sigh of relief. It's Annika Smithers, who was the subject of an AFP investigation related to a story she wrote for the Sunday Telegraph and the Sunday Herald Sun, looking at a leaked document that posed uh, a pretty dark picture, or put a pretty dark picture before the Australian public about the extension of government surveillance. Annika no longer has to worry about an AFP investigation because the AFP has said she will not be charged. Annika joins me to talk about that and her new book published by Hatchet called On Secrets. Annika, thank you for joining me. Great to be with you, Tom. Now, um, can you please tell me and the audience, but me particularly, um, how did you feel when the news about the AFP's um, decision not to follow through on charges in your case? Um, look, I'm a journalist and I actually don't have the words for how I felt, um, which is unusual, but... Uh, I knew it had been hanging over my head. I've written extensively about it. I knew I haven't been myself. Um, I haven't felt, I guess, the same joy for life over the last year. I've still been to friends' weddings or to Christmas Day and all the things, you know, going through the motions. But I genuinely um, a lot of the time felt like I wasn't present. And it's only been about two weeks since I've had this news, but I I feel like a weight has physically been lifted off my shoulders. Um, throughout the ordeal, like a lot of people reassured me, as I perhaps would have done to other people, saying, you'll be right, and, you know, they wouldn't dare do this. I had politicians threatening not to go to Parliament if they jailed me or tried to prosecute me, um, you know, ministers of the Crown saying that they had I had their support. But this was beyond, you know, a lot of people's control. This was... The AFP had to decide what they would do and um, I guess maybe in a worst-case scenario thought, it, I sort of thought if I'd, I thought I was going to jail and I thought the worst thing was happening, then I'd be prepared for it on the day it did. So um, I'm not usually a pessimist, but I think maybe as a way of self-preservation, I, I just sat there and had to deal with the fact that I could be prosecuted or even go to jail and um, it wasn't until two weeks ago that I really felt like I could get on with my life and that wasn't going to happen. It's an interesting situation, isn't it? Because those around you don't really completely comprehend what you're going through right that second, do they? That's, that's exactly right. And look, people try, um, and I would not be critical of anybody in my sort of close network, whether they be colleagues or friends or, or contacts. There was so much 
support. But it's terribly isolating, you know, going through something like that. Um, you are going through something that nobody else can really go through. And, look, I did – I have spent a little bit of time chatting to the guys from the ABC, Dan and Sam. Um, they're in a similar predicament to me. And particularly after my house was raided, I had a really good chat to Dan um, about how he was feeling. But realistically, we were out on our own and um, uncharted waters – and a lot of it was not knowing when it was going to end too. You know, I kept sort of saying, I wish there was a, even if I was going to be prosecuted or go to jail, which, you know, I would like to put on the record is not what I wanted or what I thought was fair. But for a while I started to think, even if I did, if I could, you know, if I had been prosecuted on the day they raided my home, I would have been a year into it and I would have felt closer to the end. A lot of it is that sort of just not knowing and having to get on with your life. And I sort of have written a number of times about my friends were buying houses or having children or getting married or moving to London, the things that people my age sort of do. And I just felt like I couldn't do anything. Like my life was frozen in time and I lost a year. And I think maybe through COVID people can relate to that a little bit now, what it's like to just sort of watch months drag by with little progress. But um, yeah, it's um, it feels like a sentence in itself sort of going through that. But now I can sort of, I can start to live again. It's, it's interesting you say that because, you know, but I've gone just through defamation type actions and all that sort of stuff where you, you don't, you, you feel really, really tensed up because you don't know where it's going to go. But in mm -hmm. your case, in, in your case, what there's a separate overlay. It's not just going in to have a tussle with someone over accuracy and reputational damage. It's the whole deal about, you know, potentially having a criminal uh, conviction over your head. Yeah, and um, it's funny, a few people that have had defamations have sort of talked to me or even people that have had family court issues have sort of said, you know, almost the outcome wasn't what they feared. It was just a constant drag of having it over their head. Um, uh, for me, the outcome could have been very serious. Um, and there was many ways I was worried about this. It wasn't just me being prosecuted. It was perhaps them chasing a whistleblower. Maybe it was, you know, the right or the wrong whistleblower. Like both of those had different outcomes. Um, having to defend myself, having to give evidence. Um, what if they just, there was a lot of thought that maybe they would never drop it. It would just sit there for my life. And even if they didn't do anything and even if they decided not to prosecute, that they never would actually announce that. And that was also one of the scariest options for me. I remember thinking I'd almost prefer to go through a prosecution and you tell yourself different things that you sort of get you through each day but I started to think maybe it's easier just to go through this even if the outcome is wrong as opposed to um you know having to have this pop up again in 20 years time what are the things that you did during that period that distracted you from it um were you, were you able to, to to focus on things like listening to music sort of do do other stuff that that enabled you to switch off a bit um, look, there were some good things and bad things. I guess we all learn lessons from times like this and many days were just about surviving and I must admit I went into my shell a little bit. I didn't see friends as much as usual. I didn't go into the office. I worked from home a little bit more. Um, I just got sick of talking about it, um, you know, every time I went into work, even though it was a lot of people were sympathetic, I just it, I didn't want to talk about it, you know. Um, I actually, we got a puppy um, just about a month after the house was raided and it seems silly trying to raise a boisterous puppy when you're going through a stressful time, but it was that distraction of a dog. Dogs don't think of you anything other than, you know, they just want walks and food and they just love you no matter what. So it was 
it was actually the best thing that happened. It got me out of the house every morning and in the really dark days. And they weren't, you know, they weren't all dark days. I did many normal things during the past year. But on those days, I really didn't want to get out of bed. I had to because I had a puppy asking me to get up every morning. So um, I, it was all about routine too. I really found um, great success in doing things like cooking dinner or, you know, uh, knitting or something where I could complete a task, especially something I did with my hands where I just didn't have my mind because I felt that when I turned on the TV, my case was often talked about. Um, you know, if I went on social media, I'd often see things about it. Um, so I had to find new ways to distract myself and, and physical things where I completed a task. Felt I felt this great sense of accomplishment, whereas in so many other areas of my life, it felt like nothing was moving. And then people sort of spent their time reminding you about it as well, I guess. Yeah, and look, I'm, again, it's, uh, people mean well. I don't think anybody meant to upset me, but I'd ring my parents and there was a lot of, oh, I'm so stressed, I saw you in the news today, or somebody rang, or they ran into somebody at the shops and they're worried about me. And I, you don't want to worry other people. I'm, I, I had enough worries myself. I didn't want to upset my family and friends, so I used to sort of just dismiss it as, oh, it's right, it's all going to be okay, even if I didn't feel that way. So um, I also found Australians tend to joke things off. A lot of people made jokes about where the AFP were and were they listening to me and where, what was I going to wear when I went to jail and, you know, jokes which in some ways I guess I hated but in other ways it at least allowed me to laugh even if inside I wasn't laughing. It was probably better than showing how scared I actually was. Yeah, sometimes uh, that kind of black humour is mm. is not particularly sensitive or timely. No, um, but it's a very Australian thing to do, I've discovered. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, it is one of those things that, that, that some, some Aussies do. Not everyone, not everyone um, mm. feel, feels comfortable with it, and I certainly wouldn't mm. in a particular situation like the one you were in. Now, if we go back to... Um, in the time machine, Annika, and look at the news story that sort of caused it. Some of the things that you wrote about actually sort of it developed into measures that people were taking to enhance secure, security surveillance, haven't they? Yes, I like to say that I'm proven right. Um, the government would probably argue the nuance of it, but... Um, Yes, the crux of the story was right. I knew it was right on the day. I never, you know, would have written a story that wasn't correct. And um, it, it seems the government are not backing away from it, despite the uh, controversy around the story. Um, the Well, uh, there's just some other issues involved with that, which we can get on to uh, now. In terms of... You know, surveillance and enhanced surveillance. There were a whole range of challenges uh, for the community. Focusing on journalism, though, Annika, for the moment, um, mm. what are the changes you see in enhanced surveillance of that kind from a news-gathering standpoint? Look, I... Um... I'm one of those people that I guess prior to my situation would have thought, you know, if it's for the greater good, I'm not necessarily against national security enhancements. Um, if you've got nothing to hide, then you shouldn't be against it. And that was always my thought. Now, I must admit, I'm a very different person now. Um, 
to put it in context, you know, since September 11, there's been a lot, I think 66 national security laws or changes pushed through federal parliament, some of them good, some of them bad. And, you know, a lot of them have kept us safe. We're, we've been very lucky not to have a major terrorist attack here. Um, we have had some terror events and I guess each of those have been dealt with and we've wondered, you know, did were the right systems in place? And that's completely justifiable. Having said that, I still think the, the public, whether they've got something to hide or not, should be concerned about mass surveillance, um, particularly journalists. Uh, when you're a journalist, as I discovered, you're not only protecting your secrets, you're protecting the secrets of people that trust you. Um, in that case, it could be you, Tom, you've texted me before, so therefore when you text me, you should have the guarantee that no one else looks through my phone. Now, the day I was raided, the police did look through my phone. Um, they've since destroyed that, but at the same time, that made it very hard for me to get sources to trust me again. Um, that was at least something I was aware of. They came over with a warrant. It was a physical search. Um, some of the things the government wants, uh, some of the national security laws the government want, are to do this a bit more covertly. Uh, the a ASD, which is the Australian Signals Directorate, they're our cyber spies. Their whole motto is to protect Australians from foreign threats. That's not to say we shouldn't look at Australians. We have police forces. We have ASIO who have a wide scope to be able to investigate Australians who are up to no good. Um, the ASD are meant to look at foreign criminals and they want to change their remit, um, or some people do, so that they can start looking at people now, within Australia, I think this is a bit of a concern because many of the ways they operate could mean they could access electronic data, um, whether that be on your phone or your computer or some sort of, you know, power bill, um, without you knowing. And I think that's a very different set of circumstances it takes us into. Um, and I think people should be alarmed that that's something that governments want to do. I think you, we've got the cases of uh, Assange and Snowden, and uh, no doubt if you go scratching below the surface, others who've looked at issues of surveillance, Snowden in particular looked at mass surveillance in the US and it didn't win him too many friends. Um, but in terms of news gathering, uh, Annika, when we look at how we as people in journalism operate, mm. uh one of the one of the challenges when you come across something that people don't want you to have is how far you go to, for example, de-identification mm. of of what you have uh, observed, seen, dealt with, heard, um, and at the extent to which you, know, you that protects a source but tells a story or that protects the news organisation but tells a story. Mm. Has anything changed in news gathering that you've noticed either from your side or from the side of uh, people um, yeah, that you work with? I think the way, I don't know if it's just my case, but I have noticed since sort of reporting in Canberra for the last six years that there is a tendency to... Uh, use different apps. You know, people used to just text and people would email. I do know that myself and my colleagues don't necessarily do that, whether it's a um, encrypted app or face-to-face -face conversations. I think they're increasingly a more popular way to communicate and I think that's a good thing. I, 
I do worry about how we deal with sources because no journalist in Australia can guarantee to a source um, as much as we can. You can say, I won't give your name up and I'll go to court for you. But the way that I guess we're structured now, um, it makes it very difficult to 100% guarantee to a source that they won't be outed because of the, I guess, the national security laws that um, our authorities have. So I think that's a real concern. Um, Having said that, sources have to, and whistleblowers, whatever you want to call them, they have to make up their own minds. Um, Some people are happy to go on the record. In other notable cases at the moment, there's people that have admitted to being sources. Um, Then there's also the the sort of risk of the government pointing the finger at a wrong person um, or wrong people. I know when my story was initially written, there was columns by some of my colleagues written about who might have given me this story. And I think that's a very dangerous path to go down. Um, uh, that can do incredible reputational damage to ministers or staffers or, you know, any people who work in the government. So I think that's that's a real worry. Um, I would like to give a better sort of, I would like to be able to give sources and whistleblowers more confidence that their secrets were protected. And whilst I can do everything in my power, I just think the way we're structured at the moment, that's not something I can guarantee. Uh, it's also fairly challenging for someone doing, uh, someone passing information on to us. Mm. Uh, that is sensitive in an organisation. We can use a simple example from my days doing risk management in an association for my sins. Um, the, you know, things like, when you understand how a place works, um, you know, there are parts of hard drives that only a handful of people can access. Mm. There, are, there are documents that are only um, capable of being accessed by a certain class of individuals. And the suspect list can just be spat out uh, via a, from a central computer and they're in such the investigation. Um, so it can be really, really challenging for people to find ways of communicating serious things that they've seen, breaches that they've seen to, to people like you and I, because their internal systems are also very sophisticated and you, know, you and there are ways in which people can leave a footprint <laughs> and they may not even be aware that they've left signs that they've done something. Absolutely. And I think that's a real worry because one for the guilty party, but also for the innocent party. Um, there was a note of, there's a couple of cases I can think of one years ago involving some Herald Sun journalists and a whistleblower was identified just because they looked at a phone record and they went, well, you spoke to this person on this date, so you must be guilty with no evidence about what was actually said in that conversation. Now, Canberra's a small place. I play, you know, netball with public servants. I, um, you know, have had housemates that are public servants over the years that have worked in different areas and most people are very professional about this sort of relationships. But it it, it it is a worry when, you know, just because of those sort of weak links that you can be suggested, whether true or not, that you're a whistleblower and it puts people in a very difficult situation. Having said that, for research in my book, I found out that most whistleblowers, you know, don't just go run off to the press straight away. There seems to be this idea that whistleblowers are sort of troublemakers or squealers. 99% of them, um, according to some study from Griffiths University, some studies that actually try and raise issues internally. So if they work at a hospital or at a bank and they see wrongdoing, most of them try and raise it with a manager or they go to an ASIC or a sort of a governing body 
uh, a watchdog, and it's only in these final cases when they're not getting any answers that these people go, you know what, I'm going to go and tell the media. And instead of rewarding people like that, which in some countries around the world, whistleblowers are sort of put on a pedestal, we've never never really had that culture. And often these people are shunned and stood aside. They risk losing their job. Worst case, you know, going to jail and losing their freedom. But even at a lower level, they're sort of be, are perceived as risky and um often they're just pointing out bad things you know it's the standard you walk past and I must admit I've walked past things I don't always agree with and sometimes it's easier just to shut up but most people would agree that's not the right thing to do they would agree but in in, definitely as a matter of principle but how far do they take it uh because you know in a corporate um take the bank for example there will be people who complain all the way up to a certain chain of management, and then it just ceases to be, um, it just ceases to get anywhere. Mm. And that that then becomes the prompt uh, for for some kind of action. Yeah, some people might be mischievous, and I've come across those uh, in the accounting world um, over the years, and that got me my first ever ban from one of from an accounting body, believe it or not, back in 1996, Annika, CPA, CPA Australia banned me before they, you know, got into trouble with Joe Aston. Wow. <laughs> but, but mine, mine happened before the before Twitter and Facebook and everything else, right? Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, there are people who are mischievous. But some of the cases we see today are people who have genuine concerns about national security customer welfare mm. uh, and a range of other things where they need to be heard, but how they get to the channel that's going to give them the voice is a different matter altogether. And an increasingly difficult, um, you know, issue for them. You know, we talk about um, in uh, Deep Throat, you know, in in the US and with Watergate, they used to put a flag and a pot plant on a sort of balcony and that was an indication that they were wanting to have a meeting and um some, it makes me think that maybe we will need to re- revert to that. You know, it, it is often not safe to catch up, um, even if you have no malicious intent, but it becomes increasingly, um, since we're all tra- carrying around phones in our pockets, it, it becomes an increasing issue about um, what you could be getting, what trouble you could be getting yourself into. Now, you do have a book, as you mentioned earlier, called On Secrets. Um, what territory did you, what territory do you traverse in the book, I'm assuming that it's around about twelve to thirteen thousand words. Yes, good pick. I think it's twelve and a half thousand words. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what have you covered in the book, Annika? Look, it would have been wonderful to write a sort of as it was originally. Someone suggested to me, you know, write a tell-all book about uh, sort of in in the manner of Deep Throat about how this story sort of came about, but. You know, uh, given the police on on to me and, and have been interested in my case, I was obviously writing this before they dropped the case. But that's you know those sort of level secrets are things I'll take to the grave. But I guess that's the point of the book. It's called on secrets about you know about my secrets, about secrets people share with me, um, about the difference I guess between personal secrets versus what's in the public interest and what's not, and and why some secrets need to be told. Um, I'm not the sort of journalist that thinks just because the government have kept something from us that therefore it should be made public. I think there are cases when government secrecy is needed, whether that be because 
you know, we have to protect ourselves from foreign threats or because it's a risk to someone's life. I do understand and respect that. But at the same time, we employ the government. We, the people, employ the government. We employ them to, um, by giving them a huge chunk of our wages every week, uh, they do things in our name. They work for us and we should be entitled to know what they're doing with that money and that power. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the way in which I put that uh, that argument to people who had the discussion with me uh, is that anyone in government basically breeds and bleeds the way I do. The rest of it is just details. They're there to be held. They're, they're there in a position uh, to be held to account. Absolutely, and I think sometimes that's lost, um, whether it be through pomp and ceremony or. You know, I, I understand respect we need to give to people in certain positions and most of the politicians, I'd say more than half, work incredibly hard. Um, definitely, you know, more than 50% of them never see their families work really hard and are in it for the right reasons. That doesn't mean they always make decisions you agree with, but a lot of them are good people. That doesn't mean we need to give them constant, you know, adulation and respect that takes away from the fact Absolutely. that they actually are employed by us. Absolutely. I mean, I, that's the my that's why I've had that credo for years, um, which is yeah, simply they're people. They're there. Yeah. They're working, and they're in a role. They're there to be held accountable. Yes, some of them are nice guys and girls. Um, so, but that's not the point. I mean, that, that that can get you into a trap, can't it? If you if you get too far down the road of thinking about people solely as as mates Mm, and that's another issue you know completely the other issue if you teach if you have too much of respect for them you know and um, scared to call out their mistakes because of their power then that's gonna you know affect your reporting on the flip side of that Canberra's a very small place everyone knows each other and um, if you get too close with them that can be also you know inadvertently you can protect them so it's a fine balance and I'm you know as I say I I usually give people the benefit of the doubt a certain amount of times. We all work, we're all busy, we make mistakes. You might not agree with things the government are doing, but they should be held to account and given a chance to respond. I hate when they're not given a chance to respond. But at the same time, you know, this idea of secrecy that if something goes through a cabinet table or sprinkled with cabinet dust, as someone once said to me, we're not allowed to, you know, if it's leaked, it's then a crime. Um, And I have had countless chats with ministers that have said to me that things that they've seen with top secret stamped on them that or that have gone through cabinet don't deserve to they're nothing you know no more important than a shopping list they've written but there's a reason they don't want the public to see it often that's embarrassment and uh embarrassment is not a reason to keep things from people i mean if people that are running the country are being dumb we should know I think we're more than entitled to know. I think we're entitled to know and if we're upset about it, do something about it. And, you know, it actually works better for them too because if they are accountable um, and they are seen to be accountable, then we will have more respect for them. We will respect the, you know, the job they do, the role they take on. Um, Being a cabinet minister will have, you know, the power and, you know, the meaning it should, which is that you are you know, doing the right thing for people. It used to, cabinet responsibility, these used to be sort of things that we believed in and increasingly when things are hidden or overlooked or people aren't responsible when they're in cabinet and they don't get sacked, I think that actually brings down the whole system. Um, If we 
if we go back to having sort of openness and transparent government and response, cabinet responsibility, I think it'll benefit everybody, especially politicians, because people will believe in them more. That that's the Westminster system and ministerial accountability, Annika, is actually another separate discussion that could take all afternoon. <laughs> it could, I could, maybe for another day. <laughs> Absolutely. Look, where do people find the book? Uh, I'm told it's um, at Dimmicks and it's also at Angus and Robertson, a lot of big bookstores. It's on Booktopia or online at Amazon. I'm seeing it is selling out at some places, which is good for me, I guess, but um, it's available on back order. So I don't think we're at risk of running out. And it is only, as you say, a relatively little book. You could almost call it a novella. So it's 12,000 words and um, it makes the price a little cheaper too. You can get it for about $17. So it would be wonderful if your listeners could buy a copy. Absolutely. Look, Annika Smith, thanks for joining me today and uh, good luck with the book and good luck with reporting um, <laughs> in Canberra these days. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Not a problem.